you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the fourth chapter of Galatians. And my text today is primarily Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, though we will comment on verses 1 through 3. And we come to, the one, to one of the greatest summaries of the entire Bible, boiled down into four verses for over 30 years. This has been a passage that has gripped my soul. So here, the Word of God, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So far the reading of God's Word. Did you catch the beginning of verse 7? So you are no longer a slave but a son. In our trip to Benin last week, as we traveled in West Africa, you will recall that Benin uh, was formerly known as the Kingdom of Dahomey, one of the most powerful kingdoms in Africa in the 1700s, 1800s, and, and 1900s. And there in the middle of the 1700s, it rose to power as a great conqueror. And Tay and I visited the palaces of King Glele and King Gozo, who were at the pinnacle of their power uh, with unmatched wealth. Where did they get their wealth? Well, they sold palm oil, but where did they acquire their wealth? Came through slavery. Slavery. All the slavery in Brazil and the Caribbean and, of course, in our own terrible history of slavery here in the United States came through what the maps of that time called the Slave Coast at the Bight of Benin. That's a little gulf of Benin, where now the city of Ouida, but was the port of Dahomey, King Glele and King Gozo sold those that they conquered and conscripted and sold them into slavery. What is slavery? Slavery is one human being being another man's property. Someone who is taken or conquered or kidnapped by force and deprived of basic human rights. And they live their lives. The slave lives his life under the dominion under the oppression of his master. As we were in the palaces, of course, there's a museum there with a tribute to Glele and Gozo. We actually saw uh, the, some of the chains that went around the necks of the slaves and the shackles that bound around their feet. Here's our friend Glele. 
that, that the, the umbrella uh, was kept over his head at all times during the day, spun in a counterclockwise correct direction. If it went in a clockwise direction, the attendant was put to death. And it created a fan of cool air over him. And he conquered his enemies, and of course, as I told you, they are sent down to the port through the door of no return. And this is a memorial to the slavery of that time. So verse 7 is very profound because it says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And as Martin and I have unpacked the first three chapters of the book of Galatians, as now we're turning into the fourth chapter, as we have unpacked it, what have we found? We have seen that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, whether you are circumcised or not, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are a male or a female, whether you are a slave or you are free, you who have faith in Jesus Christ, Receive all the blessings of God promised to Abraham and secured for you by Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. But if you read through the Bible, you find again and again that humanity in its fallen estate that humanity is enslaved. And that word is used again and again in Scripture, is it not? Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And anyone who is honest in their heart knows that we are slaves to sin apart from God. The writer of Hebrews says you are enslaved to fear of death. And the philosopher Rousseau, he said, anyone who pretends to face death without fear is a liar. We are enslaved to death and fear of death. Peter says you're enslaved to the futile ways of life. What's he talking about? Paul, he talks about the elementary principles of this world. I'll tell you essentially what they're talking about that enslave you. He's talking about the rat race. He's talking about your life when you get on the hamster wheel and you just start running and you start going and you start saving and you start working and you do the laundry and you've done all the laundry and you turn around and look at the hamper and what happens? It's full again. And there is a futility in life. And we are slaves to these cycles of what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls vanity and futility. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to futility. But our passage today teaches us that there is something more wonderful than slavery, something better than slavery that is true for the Christian. And what is that in our passage? Sonship. Sonship. It's a great word. Um, some of you have heard me many times quote my, my friend and mentor, Jack Miller. And he used to say that the Christian life can be summed up in the word sonship. Right from this passage. That the Christian learns to live with power 
when the Christian understands and embraces their legal rights as sons, and as the Christian relishes their personal delights as sons of God, daughters of the King, children of God. Legal rights and personal delights summed up in these four verses, all of redemption, all of God's work for us captured in these four verses. Verses 4 and 5 are about your legal rights, and then because of your legal rights, grounded in your legal rights, something very special happens. The personal delight of having the Holy Spirit of God dwell in your heart and rising up out of you the very words that came from the lips of Jesus, Abba, Father. So, point number one, Christian, Paul tells us here, embrace your legal rights as a Christian. You see, verses 4 and 5 are filled with legal language. It's very interesting. As he begins this magnificent summary of the work of Jesus Christ, and really, this is all about what God has done. If we, I, would, I could spend an hour with you unpacking the Trinitarian nature of this passage, how God the Father planned your redemption, and then when the time was right, God the Father sent God the Son into this world, it says explicitly, and then once He accomplished your redemption, there was a second sending. The Father sent then the Holy Spirit. And who is that Holy Spirit? The Spirit of His Son, Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all who accomplish your redemption, your salvation. But the, the language I want you to see here that's so, so uh, profound is legal language in verses 4 and 5. And those of you who are attorneys, I know you will appreciate this. It's the language of redemption justification, and adoption. It's, it's what the lawyers among us would call forensic language, the legal benefits that belong to the Christian. And if you don't understand this, I'm just telling you because I've been a pastor for a long time and I've talked to a, a lot of church-going people, if you don't understand this, what happens is that Christianity becomes all about being nice and trying harder. And Christianity is just a self-improvement program. So Paul, in this summary, begins by talking about the legal rights that are grounded in the work of Jesus Christ and applied to you and me. And the first one is redemption. It says, verse 5, Jesus came to redeem. Again, his concept of redemption comes from what? from the institution of slavery that we've already been discussing. The idea that you and I are redeemed means we are redeemed from slavery. And a slave, as I told you, was someone else's property. That was the reality in this ancient world. How, how could you get out of slavery? How could the chains be broken that were around your neck or around your ankles? The way was called redemption. Redemption. If someone paid a redemption price, they could buy you out of slavery. 
And on occasion, there might have been some people who were able to buy themselves out of slavery, but that was rarely the case. Usually it was someone else, someone who loved you. And they paid the price to set you free. Redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is just deliverance from the power of someone else's dominion over you so that you are free. Jesus came to redeem. And I love the way Peter put it. I, I quoted it on the back of your sermon outline. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it's not just the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, and that's the same word that is also translated redeemed, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Whoa. Oh, what did Glelly want or Gozo want uh, if you were going to redeem a slave? He wanted silver. He wanted gold. Or, as we learned while we were there, sometimes he would trade slaves for cannons um, and, and, and military hardware. And, and he actually would trade 15 slaves, able-bodied slaves, for one cannon. So you could uh, get a you, you brought him a cannon, you could set free 15 slaves or buy them for yourself. But, but Peter says it's not silver or gold that bought your redemption. What is it? Do you know? Do you know the verse? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, the price was the blood of Jesus to buy your freedom. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, you know, we are slaves to sin, but then he says in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So Jesus even envisioned himself before he died on the cross. He envisioned that the Son of God had come to set people free, to set the captives free. Now the language gets very specific, and it says he came to redeem those under law to redeem those under the law. And the language of redemption becomes the language that we have been studying over these past months, the language of justification. Because the redemption that we needed was payment for the guilt of our sins. And what is it that defines our sins? It is the law of God. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. Sin is the failure to fulfill the righteous and good reflection of God's character in the law of God. And so we are told that when the fullness of time, when it was right, uh, Paul calls it the end of the ages in 1 Corinthians, when the end of the ages had come, God sent His Son into this world in space and time. Jesus was not a myth. Jesus is not a myth. Don't let any of your friends or your professors suggest that it's a nice story. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman. Her name was Mary. Born under the law. His father was a Jew. Mary was a Jew. They had the oracles of God and the law of God. Born under the law with a specific purpose. To redeem those under the law. And we are told in Galatians 3, verse 13, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came into the world to secure your legal rights. If you are to stand before the bar of justice, God's holy bar of justice, I don't know about you, but I know what my report card says. It says F for fail. But it tells us here that Jesus was sent and born of a woman. That means He was human like us, fully God and fully man, born of a woman. And then it says He was born under the law. Why? Because He was sent as a substitution for us. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. And all across Benin, in almost every opportunity I had to speak, I said, Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, and He died the death we deserve to die. And He is a Savior who does all things well. And He fulfilled the law. Jesus said, I fulfilled all righteousness. Israel failed. All of humanity failed. But He who was born of a woman, born under law, secured our justification before the Father. And He not only, that's, we call it His act of obedience, He not only fully obeyed the law, but here in verse 13, it says He then willingly identifies with sinners and stands in your place and takes the curse that I and that you deserve. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. That's redemption. That's justification. And then he says that you might receive adoption as sons. And there's the third legal statement there at the end of verse 5. And adoption is a legal process. My wife Nina used to work for Bethany Christian Services when we lived in Philadelphia. I think Bethany Christian Services is one of the most wonderful adoption agencies I have ever known. It's a Christian organization, and they help women in crisis pregnancies. They help thousands of children in foster care, and they make their way into the adoption process. And Bethany does it like no other Christian organization in Philadelphia and in Grand Rapids, which are the two major offices that they have. What they do on the day of the adoption is that there is a judge in Philadelphia in the surrogate court who's a Christian. And Bethany has a Christian lawyer. And for the child is appointed a Christian lawyer. And on that day in that courthouse, it's like nothing you've ever seen in a courtroom. But there are flowers there. child is brought to his new family, and he's welcomed, and the judge places the child in the arms of his new father. He is welcomed into that home, and the paper is signed, and he's given a new name, and they pray. They're in the courtroom, 
and celebrate this new life for this young child. <sighs> the redemption and the justification is for a purpose. That purpose is adoption so that you may come into the family of God and it is signed and it is sealed and it is official that you might receive, in the Greek language it says, the full rights of sons. And you get a new identity. How do you see yourself? How do you describe yourself? Are you a businessman who happens to be a Christian? Are you a student in a middle school somewhere that happens to be a Christian? Ethnically, are, are, you, a, are you a Hispanic who happens to be a Christian? Are you an Asian who happens to be a Christian? I've asked you that before. What is first in your life? Are you a businessman who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who happens to be a student in middle school or a, a businessman or a homemaker? What is first? What is your identity? I learned this lesson from a friend of mine named Tom, Tom Doyle. He was converted around the same time I was. And Tom didn't go to college. I went off to college. Tom went right into the workforce, and he wanted a job at a bank. He, put, he bought a suit, and he put on a tie, and he went to a job interview. And we, we had just come to Christ together, and um, I called him up that night. I said, Tom, how did the interview go? And he said, something amazing happened. He said, I got the job. I said, well, tell me about the interview. He said, well, I sat down, and the man behind the desk said to me, tell me about yourself. <laughs> Tom was a star of the football team, and, you know, he sang in the men's glee club, and he used to beat up people like me. You know, that was the kind of guy he was. But he became a Christian, and he, his life was different. And so he sat there, and the guy said, tell me about yourself. And Tom said, it just came right out of my mouth. The first thing you need to know is that I'm a Christian. He hadn't planned to say that, but the guy asked him. And then he said, I'm good at math, and I love football, and I'm a big Steelers fan, and all of that. And I thought to myself, you know, he's got it right. That's what's first. But what about you? Someone says to you, well, tell me about yourself. What is first in your sense of self? I've been redeemed. I've been justified. I've been adopted into the family of God. And these are your legal rights purchased by the Son of God sent in the fullness of time into the world. Do you believe that? But as good as that is, there's something even better. What could be better? What could be better than knowing your sins are forgiven? <laughs> what could be better than knowing that God will not send you to hell 
because you're in Jesus Christ and you've been justified. What could be better than that? But apparently, there is something better. And we are told in verses 6 and 7, and because, as a result of, grounded in this work of Jesus Christ, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And Paul unpacks for us this new delight that comes to our souls by the residency of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Son of God, the Spirit of God who, who takes up residence in our hearts. Oh, my. And if you're going to understand this, it means you have to look again at Jesus because it is the Spirit of His Son who comes into our hearts. So let's take a look at Jesus And apparently, the way Jesus spoke is the way we should speak. And the way Jesus felt is the way we should feel. And the Bible does teach that the Christian life is not just information, but transformation to become more and more like Jesus, right? So, let's look for a minute and just ask ourselves, when Jesus talked to God, how did He do it? And you know, Martin told you last week, That when Jesus addressed God, he used that beautiful Aramaic word for daddy, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's almost scandalous, isn't it? Down in the kitchen, Roz Weiss has put up a poster with all the names of God down here in our kitchen. You know, if you see it, it's one of those wonderful, beautiful posters that lists the magnificent self-revelation of God where all His glorious attributes are revealed in His multitude of names so that we can understand who He is and His names are magnificent. We worship the very name of, of Jehovah God, our King. We worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. He is all glorious, all powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, all wise, all good, compassionate, just. But when Jesus teaches us how to pray. The disciples said, teach us to pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Right? Father. So, this is how you should pray. As you begin your prayers to that wonderful God revealed in all His names, you should pray, Father. Do you do that? I hope you do. I hope we as a church, in our discipling of each other, we urge each other Call Him Father. That's because the voice of Jesus is now inside you. And what is uniquely His privilege is transferred to you. What is God's Word telling you today about who you are? Hmm? What is God's Spirit telling you today about who you are? Not what is John Yenchko saying, but right now, we prayed before the service that everybody who came through these doors would be touched by God today. What is God saying to you today about who you are? You are His child. 
redeemed at the terrible price of the blood of His Son. You are justified and stand without guilt before Him. You are adopted into the family of God. And I want to tell you, I got emotional a little bit as I told you about that adoption ceremony. But that's only the beginning. The adoption ceremony is fabulous. The court's order is fantastic. But that's just the beginning because then the child goes home and gets his new bedroom. And it's his room. It's her room. And they get to enjoy game night on Wednesday nights with their new family. And they go on vacation to the spot where all the other cousins go in the summertime to play by the lake and learn to row a boat and fish with their father. And they learn to pray and sing and they feast together. It's just the beginning, you see. The legal rights lead to what? Personal delights. Legal rights lead to personal delights. And so, what personal delights are yours when you call out Abba? It's these. It's just these. You have his family name. You're a Christian. First, like my friend Tom, you're a Christian. Jesus is your elder brother. God is your father. We, the people sitting next to you, we are your family. We've been adopted too. And you take his name. And then you believe that he delights in you. Because fathers delight in their children. When God hears your name, what does he do? Some of you think that when God hears your name, he goes... Why? Because that's what your dads did. That's what your moms did. That's what your teacher does. Hmm. But Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord your God is in your midst. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. That God delights in you as a father delights in his child. Just because your parents are disappointed with you or your boss is disappointed with you or your teacher is disappointed with you or your wife is disappointed with you, God delights in you because of Jesus Christ. His smile is big when he thinks of you. And then you experience joy and peace, and he gives it to you. In my trip to Benin, you know, we knew we were in for some hard times. And I'm not as young and strong as Tay, you know, and we're, we're going to face a lot of of stuff and spiritual danger and maybe a little physical danger here and there. Who knows? We, we arrived the day before the National Voodoo Festival. And I tell you what, the entire nation shut down for the sake of voodoo. I told you this on Friday nights. And it is a spiritually dark place. Hell cackles on the voodoo festival days. And so I memorized Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8. I just 
recited it over and over and over again during the, the past two weeks. I'm still doing it. Psalm, seven, Psalm 4, 7 and 8, do you know it? The psalmist says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when grain and wine abound. Grain was money. Wine was pleasure. You know what? The Bible says God gives more joy than if you have money and pleasure. God is the source of joy. God is the source of pleasure. I just believe that. Do you believe that? See, this is what our Heavenly Father gives us by His Spirit. He gives us joy, and then He gives us peace, because the next verse says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm not the best sleeper in the world anyway. You know, I'm, I'm the tosser and turner, and I'm thinking, and I worry, and I fret, and all that. I'm not a good sleeper anyway. And then over there, during the voodoo festival, there's hooting and hollering and shrieking at nights, uh, and the bed's too short, and the air conditioner wasn't working, and I didn't have a seat on my toilet, and, and you know, it's just hard to sleep. But in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Because that's what fathers do. Fathers protect. Fathers provide for. Fathers take care of their children and make sure they're safe. And so we believe this, don't we? Do you believe this? Paul says, Paul says in Romans, he says we can fall back into the fear of slavery. The slavery of fear. We're fearful people. We are worriers. We fear. Anybody else here a worrier? What do you worry about? That's slavery. But your heavenly Father wants to give you peace. And then you believe you will receive your inheritance because He says at the end of verse 7, and God has made, and He makes you an heir through God. And it is one more time when Paul emphasizes it's all of grace. Why are you, why will you get your inheritance Is it because you were the best son? Ah, I'm better than my brothers. No. He tells you why. The last two words of verse 7. So you are an heir through God. It's the work of God. It is God's grace. Soup to nuts, beginning to end. God saves sinners, grounds them in their legal rights, and then sends His Spirit to give us personal delights in Him. And you will receive an inheritance in heaven. And so whatever you're going through in this life, it's small compared to the glories that are yours. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for His people. So, back to Bethany Christian Services. Have you been adopted into God's family? Maybe there's someone, and you say, well, I've gone to church for a long time, but I have never received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. John 1, verse 12, but to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. But you need to believe and receive Him. So this is a day for you. This is a good day for you. Like the child taken into surrogate court that day, this is the day for you to be adopted into God's house if you will receive Jesus Christ. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, to receive Him so that we can have the celebration of your adoption here 
before as we sing that closing song. But I want you to know, the rest of you, the rest of you, we will soon sing the fourth verse of this great song by Charles Wesley. And when we sing it, I am asking you to let the Spirit of His Son rise up in your heart. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I shall no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray together, shall we? Bow your heads with me. And I want to give anyone here the opportunity to make this your adoption day. Would you, perhaps if you have never prayed to receive Christ, would you pray right now uh, in your heart? Father, today you have given me eyes to see and ears to hear of the one who came to redeem me, to purchase me with his precious blood. And I do now receive him. I open my mind, my heart, my soul, my life. I open myself to you, O Lord. I say, come into my heart. Send the Spirit of your Son into my heart. I want to be a Christian. And I am glad now to be a Christian, forgiven, adopted, redeemed. Take my life and use it. And as the rest of us pray, O Lord, now would you place in us that spirit of your Son so that that, His very voice that cries out, Abba, will cry out in us and we will enjoy and delight in our Heavenly Father's good pleasure and your delight in us.